Hello mortals, we are your Valkyries, Miss Darby and Miss Charlie. And we are two lusty learned ladies from the dark beyond, here to enchant your mortal mind with our witchy wisdom. Just like you, you nasty girl. We will be discussing our experiences and opinions on sex work, art, and the erotic taboo counterculture we can't stop talking about. We are currently recording and transmitting this episode from our opulent spaceship of fiendish fun. Welcome to the Babes of Valhalla. Content may not be suitable if you are underaged, closed-minded, or immature. We discuss topics that are graphic and sexual in nature. Today we are discussing the book, Witches, Sluts, Feminists, Conjuring the Sex Positive by author Kristen J. Soleil. Kristen teaches undergrad gender studies courses at the New York School and is the founder, editrix, of Sluttist, an award-winning sex-positive feminist website. She curates the annual Legacy of the Witch charity festival in Brooklyn, New York. You can find her on Instagram at Kristen Corvette or on her website, which is kristensole.com, which we will put in the episode description. Today... We're going to be talking about the amazing book that Darby and I read. Yes, this is a great book, and we loved it very much. Um, so this book, Conjuring the Sex Positive, which is Sluts Feminists, um, on the back, if was a quick overview, which slut feminist? These contested identities are informing millennial women as they counter a torturous history of misogyny with empowerment. This innovative primer highlights sexual liberation as it traces the lineage of witch feminism. Juxtaposing scholarly research on the demonization of women and female sexuality that has continued since the witch hunts of the early modern era, with pop o-culture analyses and interviews with activists, artists, scholars, and practitioners of witchcraft, this book greatly enriches our current conversations about reproductive rights, sexual pleasure, queer identity, pornography, sex work, and more. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and if you've listened to any of our other episodes, um, you would know that we would, of course, totally be into this. Um, another really cool thing is the illustrator that me and Charlie loved. Mm-hmm. So, Charlie, why don't you tell them about yeah. Cause Conover? This book has, I don't know, somewhere between five to ten illustrations in it which are absolutely fantastic uh the artist is named cause conover and you can find them at instagram at cause con or on etsy uh if you look up cause con on etsy you can find them as well and we will also put all of their information in our episode notes but Anthony Cause Conifer, or Cause Con, is a black queer artist who forces us to face some of society's harshest realities through fashion illustration. He features black femme bodies in the recreations of prominent couture designs and his own iterations of popular ready-to-wear looks. Apart from his artwork being fashion-centric, he uses his illustrations as an outlet to talk about injustices that go on within the industry and injustices that directly affect people of color. 
These qualities through the lens of a black creator presents us with a point of view that we are thirsty for. And there is also an article about CauseCon, Darby, that you found? Yeah, so that little blurb is, um, so CauseCon does not have a website as far as we could find. So this is like his little blurb about him section in his article that he did with Garage, which I believe is um, part of Vice. So if you look on garage.vice.com, um, you can find the article with CauseCon in it and we where they interview CauseCon. And we also will put that in our episode notes as well. And I feel like you can definitely tell that he does fashion illustrations because all of the clothes in this are amazing. And I wish I owned every piece in this book. <laughs> They're so beautiful oh, totally. and witchy and macabre and perfect. Yeah, I mean, and the clothes and the outfits, like every character is so stylized that it, when I read that, it's like, oh, fashion illustrator. Yeah, that makes complete sense because they take really special care kind of getting everything in a very particular way i mean just just yeah and you can immediately i feel like tell their style well this book has so many so many points like so many amazing sections uh kristen has broken it up into chapters and each chapter kind of focuses on a different subsection uh an intersection between the uh identity of witch slut and feminist and just a really beautiful way and I think Darby and I had a really hard time finding a way to talk about this book without just like reading through it so we've decided to pick out some of our some little thoughts we found interesting and uh, elaborate on them with our own ideas so um Darby did you want to start off with uh yeah of course yeah definitely um yes and we pretty much highlighted probably the entire book so this was difficult. It's definitely worth reading. Um, okay, so I decided one of my one of my sections was the chapter "The Spell of Seduction: Sex Work and the Sacred Whore." So in this section, Kristen kind of is talking about sex work as a taboo female power, taking control of it, learning how to wield it, and this idea that. There are women in the industry who choose to do sex work who kind of view it as part of, well, as kind of being part of a, a like healing or being like, um, like part of like the practice of healing. So specifically, the quote on page 93, at the nexus of the witch and the slut identities is sex work. Some women who choose to work in the sex industry as strippers, porn performers, dominatrixes, see their practice as part of a lineage of healers tapping into taboo female power. Mm. And I love that quote Mm -hmm. because I definitely did not expect that when I started doing sex work um, was to have those types of experiences. But I think that when you're young... You don't, and and a woman as well, I don't think that we always understand or recognize that touch, sexual acceptance, and kind of feeling desired are really healing and kind of needed things for human beings. And there are a lot of people that don't get to feel that way. Mm -hmm. And I generally primarily work with 
men as a stripper. So I think that if you, the way I, I kind of, well, what I guess what I kind of realized was that after a certain point as a man, if you don't have family, children, or if you're not married or even if you are married, you don't really experience touch as often because men don't really hug each other. Mm-hmm. They don't cuddle each other. Um, you know, they can't just be touchy-feely with one another or with or with women, right? And women, we're constantly being touched. We're constantly annoyed by being touched. But we also can, I think, more easily access it, at least yeah. as an able-bodied um, woman. So, you know, you and I, Charlie, like when we hang out in, in you know, person, we hold hands and we snuggle and we hug all the time. Mm-hmm. And... I think sometimes you can take it for granted. I think especially with COVID, people might be more realizing this, that how often are you really hugged as an adult if you're not in a sexual relationship? Yeah. And as a man, you know, how you're probably even less. And then beyond that, there's sexual acceptance and the feeling of being desired and how many times have we given a lap dance to somebody who's like, you know, I really want to say this or do this, whether it's, you know, foot fetish stuff or it's some other sort of, you know, play or, or fetish or kink or whatever that they can't express or don't feel comfortable expressing that with their partners. There's been so many experiences where doing sex work I find that men want to confess something to me because they can't tell it to their wife mm-hmm. or they just want to sit there and they just want you to hug them and they just want to feel close to somebody. And there's so many times where there's been, you know, men not even, I think stereotypically people think like, oh, you're just giving lap dances to like grody old men. And that's not at all the case. There's so many times when it's a young man and he talks to me about how dating's really hard or his girlfriend just broke up with him or this and this and this happened and he just wants to sit there with me on his lap and like put his head against my chest and just hug me and and have me hug him back Mm -hmm. and there is something that's that does feel like it's healing work in that sense of course there's people who just want to try to use your you know butt as a like masturbation tool too, yeah yeah those people don't feel i'm not healing them but well you know but you might be you might be you healing might them be. too i mean they're they're probably very lonely therefore you know that's why they're using your ass to help them get off that's true that's true but yeah i don't know i don't know i think there's there is something to be said in, and i really connected with that this and that, that idea and i also loved she talked about uh, the idea of the sacred whore mm-hmm. um, and that there was these, you know, priestesses. Um, I think it was, oh, I have it right here. Uniting the spiritual and the sexual like no other historical figure is the sacred whore. Such women were priestesses in places like ancient Mesopotamia, Greece, India, who served as living expressions of the goddess of love over whose temples they presided. Through sexual congress with these women, worshippers could reach higher states of religious connection. And that's page 95. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. I like that idea of kind of being this goddess. And I do feel 
that when you enter the club, we've talked about this before, it kind of feels like an altered reality mm-hmm. where the tables do feel turned, where instead of as a woman walking around being hesitant or fearful of men, I feel very in control. I feel very powerful. Um, I do feel generally like I'm being worshipped and it feels good. Um, and I like this idea that kind of this like sexual encounter is kind of bringing people to this higher yeah. state of religious connection. So, And I feel like they also said something about the the people who ran a lot of the temples were often thought of as virgins but they were actually pure like they just dedicated themselves to their work and so the purity of their dedication got translated into virginity when that's actually Mm. um, not always what it's thought to have meant and so it's like they they are in these um these temples and these places just dedicating themselves to their art and their craft and their dedication which could have been you know intimacy and love and sexuality in the name of these goddesses um and that could be the way that they're pure they're like purely channeling you know yeah but i love that because that kind of goes to the i mean maybe for all the catholics out there i apologize but (laughs) you know the mother mary how she's kind of this never-ending virgin and there's this idea that even like forever and ever she was always a virgin Mm-hmm. It didn't matter. Even she had other children with um, Joseph. Wow, it's been a long time. She just had other <laughs> children with Joseph, but she was still like a perma virgin. Perma virgin. Oh man, <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. I just but you're right. I mean, she was completely dedicated to being the mother of Christ, right? So this idea of purity and purity being defined different ways i mean we could totally get into like the virginity conversation but no i love i love that idea yeah i love i love that idea too and i i completely identify with uh sex work Mm -hmm. as healing and i think stripping such an interesting one because as you go I feel like for me, when I listen to interviews with with dominatrixes, so much of what they do feels like that connection is mm-hmm. so obvious, right? The people coming in have this need and it's an emotional need as much as a physical need. Um, and sometimes it can be harder to see the connection uh, with stripping, but as a dancer... It, it's it's so apparent because so much of the time you're spending working with somebody's emotional state on top of their physical state, at the top of their sexual mm-hmm. state, and it all ends up getting blended into this one entity that you're trying to um, in, interact with and you're trying to comfort. Yeah, and you're kind of creating like a, like, oh, you're shifting reality mm-hmm. and kind of creating this this space that can only exist in this one place or this one moment Mm -hmm. and there is one more really good quote that kind of speaks to that oh yes uh to produce an altered state of consciousness through raising and releasing primal desires is to be versed in the art of shifting reality and perception weaving a spell of seduction like any spell requires an intimacy with the physical and metaphysical realm Ooh. Ugh, yes so good yes how can all sex workers not be witches 
100%. Yes. 100%. Because even on your worst night, even when you're so grumpy, even with the person that you're sitting there and you're just like bouncing on them because that's what they want and there's like you feel like there's no art involved Mm -hmm. in that interaction, they're still totally under your spell because you're just existing Mm -hmm. within within their grasp kind of. I don't know. You're exuding like um, an aura that they are drawn into. They're just eating it up. (laughs) And I do feel like a lot of men, you know, um, women have this kind of secret sexual power that I don't think that, at least I didn't realize how much of it I had until I started participating in sex work. Completely. But, yeah, and I don't know what it's like to be a man. Don't get me wrong. I have no idea. Don't ever want to know. But I imagine that they drive around or walk around and they see all of these beautiful women or just women in general that they don't have access to because they're one afraid of us which we'll get to later (laughs) and you know two um well I don't know I don't know if there's a two I think they are yeah they want to possess and they're also fearful of us and doing sex work it is kind of kind of like you're the goddess you know coming down from up above and becoming more accessible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, whether it's because you're younger than them or you're they find you very attractive or you're kind of very open sexually or they are viewing you that way. I mean, I would never act the way that I act the first time I meet somebody at a strip club. The way I, I would never act that way on a first date. No. No. Yeah. But in the club, those doors are completely open and it's this kind of magical, weird, in-between world. Well, you're also approaching know. everybody like you've known them, you know, forever. And there's no yeah. boundaries. There's no, like, uh, you're not holding yourself back at all. You're going straight from from stranger to, like, comfort. And that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to build this world of comfort that they can settle into instead of that awkwardness associated with a real person, which is getting to know them maybe they won't like what you like maybe you know you guys will um get into like an awkward conversation or you won't know where Mm -hmm. to go like our job is to make sure that doesn't exist like you're there to be comfortable you're there not to worry about that kind of thing that you can just kind of like let loose and that environment that steamy sexy environment is meant to facilitate that yeah, that's true. And then we can sing the song, Getting to Know You. Yeah, because that's that <laughs> reminds me of a strip club. Hell yeah. But, it, but it's like the dubstep remits. <laughs> I'm going to go and talk about um, witchcraft on screen living deliciously. Which, have you seen The Witch? Have you seen The Witch? No, I haven't seen The Witch. And I have okay. to watch The That's Witch okay. and I have to watch The Love Witch because they both Oh, I do really too. Cool. I haven't seen The we Love Witch. We should watch The Love Witch and then we should uh, put it on the podcast. Then we can do a little episode about it. That's a great mm. idea. Mm. Talk about sex magic right there. Oh, and then we could talk about sex magic. Yes, which I would love to talk about. 
Okay, cool. Um, but anyway, episode. living deliciously is taken from the witch, which is such a great line because at one point Satan says, don't you want to live deliciously? And the answer is yes, of course I do. <laughs> um, but in this section, it talked about the representation of witches on the big screen, which is such an interesting conversation. And there's so many things that I hadn't really thought about until I read this book. It shows how the witch was first only ever portrayed as an evil character. And it wasn't until the Wizard of Oz where Glinda, the good witch, was the first representation of a witch that wasn't evil. And I just thought that was amazing. I had never quite made that connection in my brain before. But then this this dichotomy of are you a good witch? Are you a bad witch? And how that relates to sex work. You know, are you a good slut? Are you a bad slut? Mm -hmm. And I'll get into all that in a second. But first, I wanted to jump into a part of this section that I found so interesting. And in the book, Kristen starts to talk about one of the most problematic witches in modern filmmaking, and that is Nancy from The Craft. And I love The Craft. Do you love The Craft, Darby? Mm -hmm. Of course. How do you not love The Craft? I love The Craft. So good. But they talk about how this movie starts out with these group of women. If you haven't seen The Craft, I'm sorry if I give away any spoilers. It came out in like the 80s, so you should have seen it already. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> it's really good, cheesy witch movie, which means it's probably like my favorite movie ever. But it's a group of young women who are all... Uh, outcasts they're depressed or abused they have social anxiety they deal with bullying and they band together as a coven to find a personal power and mm -hmm. i think that that is fantastic like this movie starts off really strong where all of these women are creating this power together and it doesn't really matter what's happening in their personal high school lives because they now have found each other mm -hmm. but nancy who is kind of like the most kind of gothic, dark, brooding, unstable one of the group starts to turn from the light side to the dark side. And as she does, the coven starts to turn against itself. And this represents how this power is too great for these young women to hold and how once they band together as a group of strong individual females, they start to fall apart. And there's this amazing scene that I absolutely love when Nancy's kind of going off the deep end and she's yelling at this man for being a horrible, terrible human being because she hates men. Mm -hmm. And she is coming towards him. And as she does, she starts to levitate and she's just sliding on the tips of her like pointy toed black boots <laughs> and just like going crazy. And as like a teenager, the first time I saw this scene, I was in love. Like, I thought Nancy was the coolest person in the entire world. And oh, yeah. It wasn't until I read this book that I was like, oh my God, that's, that's, that's such an issue. Like, it's showing how, unfortunately, you know, Nancy can't handle herself. Nancy can't handle this power. And that when women are given all this power as a group, they fall apart. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Kristen also talks about this kind of where she says that so many of these evil witches as a child, she looked up to them and it wasn't until older that she was like, oh, they're evil. You're not supposed to like them. And I felt like that was my moment reading this book being like, oh, yeah, Nancy's evil. You're not supposed to like her. But how? I don't know. I liked her, though, too. I love her. She's so great. But I, that was not the intention when she was written. She's not supposed to be the good guy. Well, I don't think that she's good, but but I still liked her. But I, but yeah, when I, I read this part in, in Kristen's book as well, I also felt like, oh, shit, I can totally see mm-hmm. how, like, this representation of witches is negative. Yeah, which just relates to, like groups of women in general who are empowered women Mm -hmm. and that they can't once they gain a certain um amount of power it becomes too unstable and they can't control it like they can't handle it i mean that's why we can't have a woman president charlie didn't you know she would just get too emotional her period would get in the way we'd have a war (laughs) like for a week every month that wandering uterus my god which there's also a really great chapter on in this book as well. You guys should really read this. But yeah. <laughs> I I guess to 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 continue with this thought is that I I just found it so interesting that that we start to kind of identify like even within the craft like who's the good witch and who's the bad mm-hmm. witch she has like an abusive father she lives in like this trailer with her mom and you can tell that they don't have a lot of money that they're facing a lot of issues they definitely are the most impoverished the ones that are facing the most difficulty in the show and yet she's the one who also ends up losing control and having like the worst outcome like all the other girls just continue through high school and she gets committed to an insane asylum what Mm -hmm. that's insane she's in high school oh well some of these witches were bad but they weren't as bad as her you're seeing them as individuals and then like judging them against each other yeah and comparing them yeah this reminds me (laughs) this discussion that tina horn just recently released a couple maybe like a month ago mm-hmm. on the hierarchy and this idea that depending on where you work in the sex work like in the sex industry depends on how like good or bad of a slut you are mm-hmm. kind of that's kind of the concept and when i was thinking about this good witch or bad witch it really reminded me of that um like looking down at somebody because they do like full service or like oh no i'm a good kind of stripper i don't do these things or like oh but i'm not as i might be doing these things but i'm not as bad as her and that idea that instead of looking at sex workers as a unit that they can be broken down when when judged individually Mm -hmm. against each other in this hierarchical state Mm -hmm. when that doesn't that doesn't do anything positive for anyone just the same way as like judging these witches against each other is not empowering them as a group it's only it's only dragging everyone down well i think that that's i mean i think that happens time and time again right like even with feminism it's like there's a lot of feminism you know swerfs who are sex work exclusionary so we want rights for all women but not for those women or they don't care about right. you know 
women of color or trans women or, you know, women with disabilities. So it's the idea that, well, if we're all women, then that's all that should matter. If we're all sex workers, that's all that should matter. Because I definitely, I mean, Mm -hmm. so many people have been talking about, you know, whorephobia and strip clubs. And it's true. I definitely know that, you know, when... I started stripping, I had that feeling. I was like, well, you know, I'm stripping, I'm not doing this. And I probably at the beginning would have felt some type of way about being lumped in with sex work. Whereas Mm -hmm. after getting educated on kind of what that means and, and learning more about it and learning and connecting with women who were doing full service, who were doing other things, it wasn't so much as you know, looking down on them as much as it was kind of looking inside of yourself and saying, okay, why do I feel the need to raise myself higher or feel better than, or feel like, well, at least I'm not doing that. It's like, where's mm-hmm. that, where's that coming from? It's coming from, you know, the internalized misogyny that we all have that's telling us, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, and, I think when you are a group that is targeted Mm -hmm. and that there is a lot of aggression and anger and um, misrepresentation, one way that we get swept in to that mindset is is instead of banding together, you end up splitting apart and Mm -hmm. trying to separate yourself from that group as a way to save yourself from the criticism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which doesn't end up doing anybody any good because we should be banded together. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You have a section on witchcraft on screens as well. I did. Um, Okay, so I like this idea of expressions of the monstrous feminine. Uh, reflecting the male anxieties about the female body. And this is kind of, it was kind of talking about this movie, The Love Witch, which I have not seen, regrettably, Mm -hmm. but is on our list now to watch. Um, And she said something, she said that that exact thing, that the monstrous feminine reflecting male anxieties about the female body. And that so resonated with me because I feel like time and time again, Men are afraid of our bodies, and yet they want to possess them. And Mm -hmm. they're grossed out. Men are just grossed out by so many things that happen that are completely natural. So, it's but you you know what I'm saying? It's like, okay, how, like, and how much anxiety do I have about my own body because of the anxieties that men have about my body? So, you know, uh, up until recently, if I was dating somebody, I would just hide the fact as much as I possibly could that like I had a period because right I didn't want to talk about it because I was so embarrassing and, I, and I'd make up like little words like oh you know it's like my girl time or whatever to try to make it like mm-hmm. sound cuter than like the barrage of like blood that was leaking out of my body <laughs> <laughs> and then you know body hair like heaven forbid yes a guy ever found out that women like can grow and a lot of us do grow like little hairs on our nipples like mm-hmm. heaven forbid that sometimes we have to you know we we shave our upper lips or we 
are doing tons of things to kind of maintain this aesthetic and we don't we can't talk about it but guys can kind of be gross and hairy and and we just sort of deal because it's guys I mean I remember getting so I I would get so anxious on dates that if we went out to eat dinner that I was so worried I would I would fart or mm-hmm. or if I had to not had to but if I was staying over at somebody's house like heaven forbid I just wouldn't poop in their house because I didn't want them to know that that you pooped. that I poop yeah so but I feel like you know men are afraid they are grossed out or they don't want to talk about these things that happen with us that are natural that happen to everyone on the planet so 50% at least of the population and I actually have there was a customer that is a great customer of mine very respectful very awesome but totally fits this mold and we had this conversation once where he literally said to me you know my wife is too real like she shits and farts and eats and I don't really want to see any of that so I come here to spend time with someone who appears to be perfect wow yeah wow yeah oh my god and we got into it you know because because I'm thinking well is your wife just like pooping on the floor in the living room is she just (laughs) farting in public all the time like is she being rude and it wasn't even about that he just no yeah he he didn't you know he lived with her they shared space together and so her being comfortable and maybe not like pooping when he's out of town I guess he just she just saves it all up for the for the weekend trips when he's gone yeah i mean he just he didn't he didn't want to deal with it that grossed him out and i i couldn't believe it that is insane that is insane you know what this reminds me of is did you ever see at least the first episode of the marvelous miss Maisel? oh yeah oh my god i love that i love that show How yeah she puts her so makeup on in, in the, the morning? first yes in the marvelous miss Maisel, she goes to sleep just looking like she has all of her makeup on her hair is done Mm -hmm. and she lays in bed like she's gonna go to sleep the second he falls asleep she gets up goes to the bathroom she like washes her hair she takes off her makeup she puts on like a face mask gets in bed then wakes up in the morning before he wakes up goes back in fixes her hair fixes her makeup and goes and lays down and like wakes up just like oh oh yes i just i just woke up like this and he's none the wiser and that is like the expectation mm-hmm. of like what women should look like like this perfect doll from like the 1950s that is so unrealistic yeah. and just and just decides to ignore the fact that women are human beings and the great part of that show is when she breaks up with her husband she starts to realize like oh i don't have to do that anymore mm-hmm. like i can just go to sleep mm-hmm. and wake up and then, you know, I can just be myself. I don't have to put on this, this, this act. Yep. Yeah. Well, that is ridiculous. 100%. Oh my God. But I feel, I feel like we all, maybe not to that extreme, yes. but a lot of us do the same thing. Like I know whenever I date somebody in the beginning and, you know, I'm on my period and they want to have sex and we have to have that conversation. It makes me nervous mm-hmm. because. hmm if they are super grossed out by it, like, oh, yeah, no, ugh, it's gross, you know, gag, then I feel weird about it, but... Yeah, and even if you're a confident person, like, oh, I'm on my period, whatever, you still have... There's still, like, this moment where you're waiting to see how they react, because that yes. also says a lot about them. You're like, okay, are you going to be cool with it, or are you going to be weird about it? 
And what does that say about you as a person? You know? Exactly. And I personally am not one to want to have sex on my period because I think it's like, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's God's gift that I get a week off. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you also don't want to hear somebody react like, exactly. oh, you disgusting creature. Like, how could you <laughs> how dare you put bleed? yourself in front of me? <laughs> why aren't you hiding? Yeah, why? Like, we know when they used to send women away. Like, well, you're... Yeah, like the red tent. Yeah, you just need yeah. to go and deal with that. Have a break. Still, in media, that idea of using your period as an excuse to not talk to men is huge mm-hmm. still today. Like, that trope of being like, oh, I have to go somewhere. And the guy's like, oh, where are you going to go? Like, if it's your professor. And you're like, uh, to the bathroom. And he's like, you just went to the bathroom. Oh, I'm on my period. And they're like, oh, God, I can't even talk to you about that. That's so disgusting. Like, please just go. Get out of my sight, you bleeding human. Wasn't that in the movie <laughs> Clueless? Right? She's like, I'm surfing the red, the crimson tide yeah. or whatever. Oh, they do it all the time. I feel like that always happens with, with boyfriends, mm-hmm. with husbands, with coworkers and bosses mm-hmm. and teachers. Like, it's endless. Like, that use of an excuse. You did the the um, two girls, one movie with uh, showgirls. And they do that in showgirls. Yep. She uses the same excuse. I was just on my period. That's why I didn't come to work. <laughs> yep. Yep. 100%. And in the sex scene when well the almost sex scene when he's like she's like i'm on my period and he puts his fingers down no you're lying and then he pulls his fingers out and it's bloody and he's like ugh and then they don't have sex yeah and i i thought okay i mean (laughs) i i know that everyone feels differently about it so it's it's to each their own but the fact that yeah but you don't have to use it as a point of shame yes exactly 100 percent. and i also feel that women tend to do sexual things with their partners when their partners are not in the most pristine condition whereas when they're smelly yeah you know they just got from the gym or they're at work all day and we're still sucking your dick but if you want a guy to go down on you i feel that more often than not it tends to be oh, why don't you go take a shower or, you know, this or that. And then it just makes, it just feels weird. Well, I also have that internalized. Yes. Where I I do get anxiety still Mm -hmm. about like, oh, well, maybe I should shower. Maybe I should do this because, I mean, I'm very comfortable with my partner. We poop in front of each other, but there's still (laughs) They poop on each other. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) We all the time, but that's different. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think there's just not enough <laughs> communication in, um, I, I would say, I believe personally, there's not enough communication in heterosexual relationships because uh, it's it's kind of, you know, it's been happening and, and been considered quote unquote normal for so long that I don't think that people feel the need to talk about it. Whereas I think in non-heterosexual relationships, there's so many more options and Mm-hmm. ways of having sex not that those options don't exist obviously for heterosexual couples but i just don't think it's normalized as much that there's just naturally mm-hmm. more conversation and that and that's coming from of course the opinion of a heterosexual person i just know that my friends that um are in homosexual relationships i'm super jealous of the amount of communication that they have regarding that mm-hmm. and I don't, I'm not saying that's the case for everyone, but it just seems 
yeah. to just be there's just more options and there there has to be more conversations and i don't know it's just yeah i know that that's interesting because i was talking to a friend of mine who is in uh they are a queer person and they're in a lot of different types of queer relationships a lot of different bodies a lot of different types of sexualities and uh like gender identifications and they i was actually talking to them about this very thing about communication and they said you know there's so little like groundwork for how you're supposed to be in a queer relationship Mm. that the only way that we can figure it out is with like such you know like blatant communication and exploration Mm. because we're trying to figure out how to be with each other because there's no um guidebook like a record like how we see heteronormative sex everywhere exactly exactly so they're like i didn't see an example of like how to be in this type of relationship so we have to make it up Mm -hmm. and then i'm learning from each relationship i'm in but each new person that i'm in a relationship with i also understand that their body is different the way they identify with their body is different which is a true thing with hetero people as well like each person identifies with their body differently but we've been we stick each other into these boxes where my friend was saying that you know we constantly are so communicative because we need to figure out how Mm -hmm. to connect in a way that we were never taught how to connect um which reminds me of what you're saying with your with your friends and their communication versus a lot of heterosexual communication. Yeah, no, definitely. And um, my quote for this little section that I really liked from the movie The Love Witch is the whole history of witchcraft is interwoven with the fear of female sexuality. They burned us at the stake because they feared the erotic feelings we elicited in them. Yes. And I just... Just like um, the the Crucible. <laughs> just like the Crucible, yes. And also, it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? So if you are attractive, men want to possess you and are afraid of you. If you are, you know, uh, unattractive. unattractive, they're afraid of you and yeah. want to possess you. I mean, it doesn't matter. Either way, men are just pussies. That's not the wrong word. I don't know. What's a good word for a weak man except for not using the word pussies or bitch? What's a good word for that? Weenie. Meanie? Weenie. Perfect. Men are weenies. That's what we're trying to get at here. (laughs) Accept us and our periods. (laughs) In the book, it actually talks a lot about that, about how kind of like the two archetypes are like the young lustful Mm -hmm. beautiful maiden or like the old ugly outcasted hag and both are equally dangerous so pretty much anyone is evil because if you're beautiful then you're trying to seduce and if you're not considered beautiful by your community then you're like evil hag in your hut trying to cast spells on everyone and give everybody a miscarriage so you know yeah yeah if you're not if not able to birth children yes then you're also evil you're just yeah she used the great word she used the word fecund i love that word oh yeah you know what there were so many words i highlighted in this book that i had never heard of before which maybe is sad to admit but you know I, i was actually really happy i would write little notes all over this book i would say that this book also um 
is not a hard read. No. Because there are some books about, you know, feminism and, and or sex work that sometimes can be good books, but they're not enjoyable. They're like academic. This, yes. And this book is a great intersection of, you know, it's, it's academic, but it's also really easy to read, easy to digest. And just, I mean, if you looked at both of our books, I think probably they look the same. I probably have like every four pages, the corner is Mm -hmm. turned down as, oh, this is great. I love this part and just Mm -hmm. highlighted and written everywhere. And it's just, it's a great book. So yeah, no, I think this is also really nice because you don't have to be into witchcraft. You don't have to have experience in sex work. It's it's really a look at women throughout history and the ways they have been prosecuted. Mm-hmm. And so it looks at those words that have been used and those titles and how women have fought back using those titles throughout history. So, I mean, I think it's just a great mm-hmm. feminist piece in general. Um, and, and you don't have to have a connection to the identity of a witch or a slut to really find the value of what she writes about. All right, should I go into my next section? Oh my gosh, I have so much to say about this next one that I'm going to try not to talk too much just because uh, there's a lot of good sections, but this one was something that I am personally so invested in. So I'm going to try not to, to be on my little soapbox. So I'm real sorry. <laughs> so this section is called Hex Cells, Feminism, Capitalism, and the Witch. So good. Okay, here we go. So, I'm going to start with a quote, which is, The witch is the embodiment of a world of female subjects that capitalism had to destroy. Um, This is a quote by Sylvia Mm. Federici on page 132, and I just thought this was such a great way to start this. It, It looks at capitalism in this very mass produced, over controlled, way that our world has slowly evolved into and how this idea of feminism and women's rights and a witch as a rebellious woman is the antithesis of that idea and how so much of Mm -hmm. women's rights and body rights and capitalism are in conflict with each other if you look at, like the sex worker movement and how many people are speaking out for sex worker rights and how this idea has become so popular within our community there's a lot of people who are wearing shirts by let's say jack the stripper right she's a very popular um mm-hmm. person in our community who makes clothes that a lot of people wear things that say like tip her or different like slogans that are all about Sex worker rights, you know, someone I know is a sex worker, I love a sex worker, claiming your identity, openly supporting the identity of others, and something very interesting that this book talks about is that when a movement becomes big, one way of bringing it down, instead of like just squashing it the way that we would think of squashing a movement, which is putting out like counter points to it, like most capitalist things they latch on and they start creating the product Mm -hmm. and they they find a way to Mm -hmm. commodify the rebellion 
and a way to reproduce it because they see like a common thread that is marketable and just like how we have to be mm-hmm. so careful as people within a community of like who we're supporting and how we're supporting a concept and how it can so easily be taken out of context and i mean this can be seen in in so many ways if you're looking at shirts that are sold on some website that says you know like I believe in feminism and all the shirts are made in China and the workers are paid cents to create it. Those workers and usually are women. Are you really contributing to feminism and a way that a capitalistic, mm-hmm. you know, society, a sexist capitalistic society can can kind of squash these rebellions is by taking money away from the people who are making genuine products with genuine attempts to spread alternative ideology it's easy for them instead of squash it to redirect the ideas and the funding and the 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 flow of money from that cause into back into this like capitalistic um whirlwind i actually have a great example of this so Okay, so what you're talking about is buying power. And women actually have the most buying power. I mean, like we we have over half of the buying power because women control the majority of the household income. Whether or not you work or not, you generally are spending the most money. And your money, better Mm -hmm. than anything, Mm -hmm. votes for you. So where you spend your money is also where you're putting your votes. And if you're choosing to support industries or... Um, companies or individuals who don't align themselves with your ideals or who use slave labor essentially to make their products well then you're supporting them they're getting bigger they're making more money they're making more products those kind of poisonous uh, methods are you know continuing and getting bigger so I actually did some copywriting work for this guy who I didn't realize until recently actually was doing this he was a very nice person I don't think he probably even realizes it to be honest but he makes his money by finding like hot topics like things that are kind of going on and he makes t-shirts and he sells them on his website and on Amazon and stuff like that and he sells hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of t-shirts a day And he takes things basically from Mm -hmm. other people, from independent, not independent artists, because it's all quotes, but they'll be, I mean, and it can be anything. So he has everything from, you know, Hillary Clinton supporters to Trump supporters, everything in between from feminists to anti-feminists, right? It's not about the message. It's about making money. So whatever's going to sell, he's going to sell it. So he has an entire line of feminist clothing and it's just things that have feminist quotes you know they say things like feminist on them or um you know uh what what was the one it uh it was you know fuck you pay me uh stuff like that just things that were trending Mm -hmm. essentially and people who are maybe okay so like me I might look online and say oh I love this t-shirt that so-and-so has an influencer that I like or a celebrity and then I go online and I'm looking for it and up pops his version of it which is close Mm -hmm. to the original and a lot cheaper 
and I'll probably buy it, right? What I don't know is that, you know, where is he making his t-shirts? What is mm-hmm. his company supporting? Who is this person? Where is yeah. that money going to, right? And that's where the breakdown happens is there's, whether this, now I'm not saying that this particular person is, is evil, but that's what Completely. capitalism is doing. So Jack the Stripper, who is an independent artist, creates something beautiful. And this guy over here says, oh, hey, this woman is making these awesome things that people are buying. I'm going to take this quote, put it in a similar font, make it pink, just like she did. And I'm going to sell it on my mm-hmm. website for $6. And I feel like when, when, stuff, when that happens, it reduces the power that a movement is gaining Mm -hmm. through supporting artists of that community. Mm -hmm. Totally, because you're not supporting sex workers. You could be wearing a shirt that is about sex work and wearing it and walking around with it. Sure, maybe you're building awareness, but that 10 or 15 or $20 didn't go to a sex worker. It went to a guy who doesn't Mm -hmm. give a shit about sex work. And what are you doing? When you... When you're buying clothing from companies that are stealing independent artist designs off of Instagram and Facebook and repurposing them and reselling them. You're not supporting the individual. You're supporting a giant faceless company mm-hmm. who does not care. Absolutely. And and there, there's such this connection. There's actually this quote that says... Um, the garment industry overseas are not only human rights issue, but a feminist issue tied into capitalism, sex work, and sexual autonomy. And that's that's so true. There's such this connection in other countries mm-hmm. between, between the garment industry, the sex work industry, how these women are able to, to interact with their coworkers, with their management, you know, how they're supporting themselves if they mm-hmm. are supporting themselves with sex work outside of the garment industry. This book has an interesting point at maybe they're actually safer in sex work than they are in the garment industry, or maybe they're supplementing their income because they just don't make enough from the work that they're doing within, within uh, garment work. Which, which is also true. I, I did a documentary a couple of years ago about the garment industry and a lot of the women who worked in the factories were also involved in sex work and also dealing with a lot of issues from their upper management uh, all at the same time while also trying to juggle living off of minimum wage. Mm-hmm. And not that we have to go too much more into this, but I think it's always important as a consumer to be conscious like if you're gonna go out there like support your sisters like support the people who are making it happen who are pushing and who are fighting to to create a community with with their artwork with their voices with their bodies you know because they're trying to build something authentic and beautiful and and build awareness or just build a community or make art or you know do do whatever and it 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 can be very easy to not not be aware or choose to be unaware of that side of of the industry that's just just very easily taking taking that narrative for themselves and co-opting it that's mm-hmm. that's all i have to say on that 
Sorry, I felt like that was all over the place. Well, it's wonderful. I just get excited and no, get explosive. When you talk, it's so well thought out. And when I talk, it's just like... Blah, 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 blah. I don't think that's true at all. Well, thank you. So this is only the end of part one. Tune in next week to hear part two. We just had too many good juicy things to say. We couldn't cut it. So I hope you guys will love our second half of our dive into this book. <laughs> in the meantime, just soothe your aching loins. You can find us on Instagram at Babes of Valhalla. If you would like to email us or record an antidote for an upcoming episode, check out our social media for the themes we are currently researching and send your comments and stories to babesofvalhalla at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, stay witchy and nasty. <laughs> Babes of Valhalla is written and produced by the Babes of Valhalla, otherwise known as your illustrious lieges, Darby and Charlie. Music provided by the musical genius, Gemini Genesis. And then we can sing the song, Getting to Know You. Yeah, because that's that reminds me of a strip club. Hell yeah. Getting to know all about but you. It, but it's like the dubstep remix. Getting to know, oh, oh, oh. Getting to know you. <laughs> yeah, see, you're so good at dubstep remixing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's my so secret second calling. It's so good. Um... <laughs>